Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. My guest today resigned from her job as the global brand president at Levi's and refused a $1 million severance package that came with a non-disclosure agreement so she could speak out freely. And that is Jennifer Say, the author of the new book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Jennifer was outspoken about policies impacting children during the pandemic, including uh, closed schools, playgrounds, and the masking of toddlers, learning loss, the increased education gap between the haves and the have-nots, the mental health crisis amongst teens, and other consequences of school closures, specifically public school closures. I learned a lot in this conversation. There were a lot of valuable lessons. Jennifer Say, author of Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. It is so great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And I think it's a really important one, um, you know, about free speech, also um, woke capitalism, which has just infiltrated uh, corporate America, broadly speaking. But I think um, maybe for folks, like just to kind of frame this up, uh, you resigned from your job at, at Levi's. You were the uh, brand president. I think you were in line uh, to become CEO, and you were really speaking out um, about children and you know the public school closure specifically during the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. But I think maybe we could even go back even further um, and hear a bit of your your own backstory because uh, when I read the book, I learned that you were an elite gymnast. You were at the top of your game. You were a national champion and uh, you quit. And I think we can kind of start there and then we can get into the more recent events. But um, can you share a bit of your background with the folks watching sure. and listening? Yeah, I had a very unusual childhood as an elite gymnast. I think I made my first national team at 10 years old. Uh, which is pretty young, but the sport is young in general. Um, I was training six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 hours a day as a teenager. And I was successful. I loved it. I loved it until I didn't anymore. The sport, uh, I think it's now known, is pretty rife with cruelty and abuse on the part of coaches. Uh, that was all exposed when Larry Nasser, the former team doctor for USA Gymnastics, went to prison for life. He was uh, charged and convicted with sexual assault of, of minors, um, hundreds of young girls over the course of 30 years. This is, the, the sport is, is rife with that kind of abuse, but, uh, you know, emotional and physical abuse as well. And as I began to become more and more successful, making national teams and winning the national championship, I actually just started to unravel. I had an eating disorder, uh, the practices in regards to weight and fat shaming and bullying and weighing in are really just kind of un, kind of unfathomable. Uh, I was training on a broken ankle, and the emotional abuse in the gym was really wearing on me. And I really began to unravel. I ended up leaving the sport. To say retired feels generous. I mean, I walked away feeling quite ashamed of myself and just completely broken and depressed a few months before the 1988 Olympic trials. Uh, I, I have come to see the whole thing differently now as an adult with, with time and some distance. But at the time, I felt quite broken by it. Yeah. As you wrote in the book, um, you wrote about like when you were leaving, how, um, as you were just mentioning, like physically and emotionally um, uh, broken. And uh, just for the folks, uh, when you read the book, like there are things that were so 
I just didn't know the things that you had gone through, but, you know, eating less than 400 calories a day as an elite gymnast, you're training, I don't know, 40, 50 hours a week. It was a really intense time. And, um, like when you, when you walked away, um, and you write a bit about this, like what were the reactions, um, you know, maybe from your family, uh, your peers, um, and how, how did you kind of deal with the reactions when you walked away? Uh, it was really tough. My family was not happy and you know my my parents aren't stage parents they never had been those parents but they had invested so much in me and my athletic career and I think it was really devastating for them to have me say I'm going to walk away before this key milestone uh meaning the 1988 Olympics you know frankly there's no way I would have made it I was losing all ability to do the sport because I was mentally unwell at this point. I was so depressed and anxious and at times suffering even from suicidal ideation. I would have done anything to get out of training another minute. But my parents were very upset with me. I think they also felt I would come to regret it, that I'd worked so hard for so long. I just needed to go a little longer. But sometimes that's not possible. You know, sometimes you're just too broken to continue. And like I said, I was training on a broken ankle. I mean, it's hard to pain really wears on the psyche over time. I just it was physically impossible for me, physically and mentally impossible for me to continue. My parents were very disappointed in that. My dad came to understand quite quickly. It took my mom a little longer. We have since long ago mended mended fences over over all of this. I didn't really hear anything from peers. I will say that in 2008, I wrote my first memoir about the abusiveness of the sport. And boy, did I hear from peers then because I said the thing out loud you're not supposed to say. And I write in the book that it was sort of an open secret that we all suffered in silence and that the coaching was incredibly cruel. What I guess I didn't realize is that it was a secret secret. You know, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to reveal it. You're not supposed to implicate any of these coaches who are behaving abusers. There's really no other other way to put it. And I was just torn to shreds as a grifter and a liar. And I was harming the reputations of good men, Olympic coaches. You know, I see them as nothing more than child abusers. I owe them nothing. I don't need to protect those who abuse children. I have no obligation to do so. Yeah, absolutely not. And um, you were you produced the the documentary film on Netflix, uh, Athlete A. I, I watched it. Like I I sobbed uh, watching it, like just hearing these stories that um, the athletes had to go through, and it was powerful. If folks haven't watched it, go watch it. I, I think it's it's a must-watch film, and uh, thank you for um, all the work that you've done in that arena. Um, there are a couple of things oh, I wrote down in, in the book. Um, you know, you wrote, you wrote about quitting has been kind of a theme in your life, and quitting is often framed as failure, but it can also be framed as successfully exiting, exiting a situation that no longer serves its primary purpose. And I found that line to be really powerful, kind of rethinking, uh, you know, quitting isn't, is not failure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not a quitter. I've not quit very many things in my life. I don't even know if I'd call it a quitting, but I was trained and grew up to believe that you just never quit no matter what. And that was so deeply instilled in me that I, stayed in a bad situation, gymnastics, for far too long, I think. But it's because I had this belief that 
quitting was was failing and it was a sign of weakness. And even after I re- retired from the sport, aka quit, I felt like a total failure despite my successes in the sports. And I felt that it was evidence of my own weakness and inability to deal with what was required to achieve greatness. Um, it took me many, many years to get past that. I would say I'm still working on it, you know? Um, sometimes things are just over and they don't serve their primary purpose anymore. You know, I loved gymnastics so much as a child, the feel of flying, the feeling of flying and being free and sort of, it's so overcoming gravity in a sense, there's nothing more fun. And in some ways I miss that feeling every day, but when you're suffering every day and you would do anything to get out of stepping foot in the gym and including contemplating, you know, driving your car headlong into another one, which I did regularly towards the end of my career, that would have been a bad solution for so many reasons for me. And I would have harmed another person and I didn't do it, but that's the, that's how depressed I was. That's how bad it was. That's not quitting. You know, that's, that's saving yourself and opening the door to another opportunity, a safer, happier existence, but it's, it's difficult. And, you know, I should say on the flip side, I think some people quit too soon. There is real benefit to sticking with something through tough times without challenge there is no triumph you know so I, I think both kinds of people exist in the world those who perhaps quit too soon and never build any real resilience um, and those who stay too long and I would definitely put myself in that in that second category I, I tend to find myself beaten and bloody on the ground at least sort of euphemistically before I get up and walk away from a bad situation. Mm-hmm. So after after gymnastics, you you went to Stanford, and um, while you were there, you talk about in the book, um, you wrote about having imposter syndrome. Uh, you said that you didn't speak much in class, um, kind of learned at a young age to get good grades, not rock the boat. Um, you graduated with a four point um, but you had little. You wrote in there that you had little confidence in your own intellect um, at the time. Can you talk to me about your years um, at Stanford and? Um, you specifically, you know, dealing with imposter syndrome, I think it's something a lot of people deal with. I certainly deal with it. Um, can you talk to us about a, that time? Yeah, I think a lot of women do, especially striving women. My understanding is they are quite afflicted with this. And it's the idea for those who don't know that you don't deserve what you have. You don't deserve to be there. I mean, I was afraid the whole time I was at Stanford that Someone was going to bust through the door and say, oh, we know you're not really smart. You're going to need to leave. We let you in. It was a mistake. You don't deserve to be here. I felt that way as a member of the national team. I felt that way in my early years as as an executive at Levi's. I didn't feel that way in, in the later years at all. I certainly overcame it. I think from a academic standpoint, I just had not been a very curious or focused student. You know, I spent all my time in the gym and I did the bare minimum to get good grades. Clearly I could get all A's with doing the bare minimum, but I wasn't, I hadn't really pursued learning out of curiosity and and for real learning sake. And in the pursuit of knowledge, I had checked the boxes to get good grades in high school so that I could go to the gym. That was, that was really it. And so getting to college where it's all about 
engaging with your peers and, um, you know, engaging your curiosity academically and seeking knowledge. I, it was a new thing for me. And, you know, I wasn't really ready for it, part, partly because I was so beaten and damaged coming out of, of gymnastics that I just wanted to rest when I, when I got to college, I felt in a way like I was retiring. And in some, in some ways I, I was, but slowly over time, um, I began to found, find my areas of interest in college. I, I never had the confidence to pursue what I really wanted to, which was more creative endeavors, writing, uh, filmmaking. But eventually I got there in my life. It just took me a couple more, a couple more decades. Yeah. You, These you, things you, happen slowly. <laughs> you, de- you definitely got there, especially on the writing uh, part. I know you have a great Substack, and you've written now two books, um, produced a, a documentary film and definitely the creative outlet. Um, so after college, talk to me about um, your early career years. Um, I, I think you worked at an agency. Then I think you worked at Banana po- Republic, uh, eventually heading to Levi's. Talk to me about um, that kind of transition more to your you know, professional career. Yeah. When I first graduated from college, I did odd jobs. I taught gymnastics, which I did not like. I had no good role models there for how to coach. Um, I did production jobs, odds and ends on commercials because I thought I wanted to be in filmmaking. But ultimately, I knew I needed the stability of a full-time job. And I took a job in an advertising agency, not what I wanted to do. I had no interest in working in business or advertising, but I found it to be fun. I liked the steady paycheck, however small it was. It's a it's a young industry. I met a lot of young people. We had a good time. We worked really hard. We had a good time. And the agency that I worked in was the advertising agency for Levi's. And eventually during my three years there, I ended up on the Levi's account and made the connections that would ultimately lead me to working at Levi's quite a few years later. Um, I did leave the agency world uh, because the pay is terrible. And I got tired of having to scrounge free hot dogs at happy hours. Uh, in San Francisco and have four or five roommates at a time. And I went to work at The Gap. Uh, They had just purchased recently when I got there, Banana Republic. And I was, I think, advertising manager or something like that. It was, uh, I learned a ton about the business and all that, all that stuff, which I wasn't particularly interested in, but it sort of satisfied a analytical part of my brain. I did not like the culture at The Gap. I can't speak to what it's like now, but at the time, it just sort of felt like mean girls gone mad. (laughs) It was not not for me. And it was very much about conformity. I mean, think about The Gap's brand image. You know, it has kind of always been about that. That's kind of what it was like internally as well. And it's interesting. It was also, this was a long time ago. This was, you know, the mid-90s there was this pretentiousness around material goods amongst the people that worked there. So they worked on this brand that was for everyone and yet they wouldn't dare wear it themselves. Uh, It was all about how big your diamond was, how fancy your car was. And none of these things were kind of in my wheelhouse of things that I cared about. So I always felt like a fish out of water there. So when I had the chance to go to Levi's which is a very different culture and environment. It's changed over the years. I was there almost 23 years. I jumped at it. Levi's was a brand I had worn since I was a child. I had fond memories of this brand. I continued to wear it even when I was working at the at the Gap. And, you know, I knew a lot of the folks there. And I appreciated many of 
sort of the cultural aspects, the, the employee culture or what I perceived it to be. And, and I think what it was for a very long time, it was a company that always said they operated with this profits through principles mindset. They put their values first. And for many, many years, I, I thought that was the case. And I appreciated that. So I jumped at the chance to go to Levi's when I was, I think I was 29, maybe just barely turned 30. It was 1999. And I started as an entry-level marketing assistant. For many years, I worked my way up the ladder. Much of the book, as you know, because you read it, is about what it was like to be a woman in corporate America in the in the 2000s and 2010s. Certainly not always easy. Yeah, definitely not always easy. I, there was like a scene in there... Um, I don't know if you even named the person, but you had mentioned like what you wanted to do, that you wanted to be a, a chief marketing officer and they like doubted you or they, I guess they thought they were doing you a favor and they, they said, oh, you don't have the, they called you an operator. I think I remember that from the book. They called you an operator and that you didn't have the creativity. Talk to me about like how, 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 how did you um kind of overcome some of those things that may have, you know, they, when you, when you're told that, how do you kind of overcome yeah. uh, when someone kind of doubts you or says, you know, you could never be a CMO? Yeah. It took me a really long time. You're a very careful reader. I like that. I chose that word carefully. An operator was sort of like code for, you know, you could be a number two maybe, but never more than that. So don't get ahead of your skis on this, Jen. It was actually said to me twice by two separate brand presidents here's what we think of you, here's what you're capable of. And by the time it was said to me, I think the first time I was sort of late 30s, possibly just turned 40, and I had built up some confidence. And while I didn't really say it out loud, in my mind at that point, I chose not to believe it because it was not true. I knew it wasn't true. I knew that I had the skills, I had the capability, I had the intellect, the analytical skills, the creative skills. At this point, I had written a book already. Um, I worked hard, harder than most. Uh, I was a strong leader. It just was nonsense, and I knew it, and I don't know what changed in me because if I had heard the same thing five years earlier, 10 years earlier, I would have taken it to heart, and I would have been really upset, and I would have thought, what do I do? How do I prove myself? How do I get better at these things? But what seemed clear to me as I kind of climbed the ladder in my thirties is that this feedback I was getting was all over the place. It was never consistent. And so it was, you're, you're too values led. You're not creative enough. You talk too much. You don't talk enough. You talk too fast. You talk too slow. It was just like, there was no consistency to it. And I realized the point wasn't the feedback. It was, you're not the thing we need. You, who you are is not what we need. And it was a very male dominated culture at the time. I didn't state this is sexist. You didn't talk about it. You just kept working and you did better and you were patient and you made your way up the ladder. That's how it how it worked. But there was subtle and not so subtle sexism every single day in, in the halls at Levi's and other companies across the country. I don't think this is surprising to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, you were CMO from 2013 until October 2020. And that is an unusually long time for a CMO. Um, I've heard people say it's like the most dangerous position because like it doesn't, I, you know, you you know, there's a, it, usually people don't stay in that role for a long time. So it obviously speaks to like the success you were having. Can you kind of go back and revisit some of those years uh, while serving as CMO? Yeah, it is a 
long time. I think the average tenure is like 20 months or 24 months. We, I, we always used to say it's a very slippery seat. It's a very public facing role. Um, it's, it's easy to fall down. Um, the, the expectations are high and it's, you know, pretty easy not, not to meet them. But I started in the role in, in 2013 and the business had been in decline for many, many years. We actually started on the road to build back in 2011, 2012, but that really accelerated in 2013 and then 2014 when the first campaigns uh, that I was leading hit the market. Uh, I was I had been leading e-commerce um, between 2011, 2013, and, and then the CEO asked me to step into the chief marketing officer role, and I was hesitant. I didn't want to do it. I liked the job I had, but it ended up being such a, I mean, it's, it's the time at Levi's I, I think most fondly of, I think I'm very proud of the contributions that I made to get the brand and business back on track. The campaign that I introduced um, is running still today, you know, not, not, not the exact ads, but it's centered in this idea of, well, the, the, the tagline is, live in Levi's and it's really sort of centered on this idea that we wear other things, but we live our lives in Levi's and that makes the brand very unique. There's an offshoot of that campaign that I also led using the tagline, use your voice. Ironically, that's what did me in. Um, but again, I'm, I'm very proud of it. And it, it just did a ton to accelerate the growth of the business. Um, women's and women's jeans, which we've never been successful at at Levi's has been the key driver of growth uh, since I had stepped in as as a CMO with, of course, great partners across product, um, great design partner and friend who I still care about a lot, but we don't we don't really really talk anymore, um, given the way things have all all shaken out. But um, you know, introduce the Live and Levi's campaign, introduce the use of music as a way to kind of really be part of the culture, introduce the use of celebrities, both big and small, folks like Justin Timberlake and Alicia Keys to represent the brand, Snoop Dogg. I mean, the list goes on and on. And all of this put us on a trajectory for a successful IPO. And, you know, I'm very proud of that. The, the, the way we positioned the brand reconnected with former fans uh, we made made lots of new friends and built new new fans and younger people engaged in a way they never had before that put us on this amazing trajectory of growth. And I'll always be proud of that, despite the way that it ended, which was unfortunate. Uh, I will always be proud of the contributions I made to put this iconic brand back on track. As you should be. Um, and I loved like you kind of taking us inside that playbook too of like finding that North Star and those campaigns and uh, working with musicians. And, um, you know, you really helped that company gain market share, major share during that time. And um, there are a couple of things that um, they bothered me on, like, I, I'm sure they bother you too. Like at, when you got the CMO role, they didn't give you a raise. And when the company went public, I wrote this in all caps, you received no stock payout. I mean, it, I don't even know, like, I, I, I was really it's surprised. Bad. I was really surprised and like really disappointed in the company for that when I read that. Yeah. When, so when I stepped into the CMO role, like I said, I was, I was leading e-commerce and I, 
you know, I had been told for years I needed to learn to run a P&L, own a P&L, and you got to run a business and you marketing people, you're just creative. But then I was also told I wasn't creative enough. So like I said, the feedback was was conflicting. But I thought, well, running e-commerce, that's giving me the P&L experience. They're telling me I need to be a business leader. So I didn't want to step into a CMO role, which quite frankly, even though I hadn't been CMO, I'd had such senior level marketing roles in the past. I felt this wasn't going to I wasn't going to build any new capability, right? I certainly built a lot of visibility for myself, but I, as far as building new capability, I mean, I had a firm handle on the job the day I stepped in. So I was asked to step into the role. I sort of thought it was a question, not a not a command at the beginning. That was my mistake. And so I said, no, thank you. I'd like to continue running e-commerce. And then it very quickly became clear that it wasn't a question. It was a a demand of sorts, which happens all the time in corporate America. So I said, okay, we can sort this out. But before we do, and before I actually start, I have a couple questions. I want to know what's the compensation? What's the package? You're telling me it's this big promotion. So what's the what's the deal with that? <laughs> um, and the other question was about how long I'd have to do my old job, because oftentimes when you're transitioning, you're doing two at the same time, which is really grueling and, and not conducive to doing a, a, a good job in, in the new role. The answer I got back repeatedly was, there's no increase in compensation. Stop asking this question. It's a great job. You should be count yourself lucky that you're being asked to do it. It's fun. It's prominent. It's the best role in the company. And I would say to the head of HR at the time, would you have taken this job that you sit in now without understanding the compensation? And he said, no, well, that's different. I came from outside. I said, it's not different. It's the same thing. You're asking me, you're telling me it's a big promotion. And I'm asking you, so it's more responsibility. It's more all of it. What What's the compensation? There was none. I, you know, I stepped into the role and I did it because it became very clear that it, it wasn't really a choice and that if I wanted to keep my job, this was now my job and there was no increased compensation. I, you know, it, it sometimes when you're in a company a really long time, you kind of suffer from a comp I, I don't want to say suffer because I was a well-paid executive but you 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 know the new folks who come in are paid a lot more I'll just say that <laughs> so you know it took me quite a few years in the role as CMO to get my compensation to one the level of my contributions but just the level of my peers because my peers were all being paid significantly more than I was as I stepped into that role. And I was told it was the most important role to get the brand back on track. So there was a disconnect there. Yeah. So that was frustrating. There was a second part of your question and now I forgot it. I mentioned that you received no stock payout at the IPO. Oh, right. Yeah. I think that, that surprised me because I would have assumed with all the success, um, you would have been able to participate in that. Yeah, you would have had... You would have had to be getting stock before the comp at you know issued at a low price before the company was public, which I did not. So there was no, yeah, there was nothing. Yeah, um, you were also talking about how the company kind of had these mantras of you know profits through principles, um, harder right over easier wrong, and use your voice. Um, and I do want to fast forward to the pandemic because that's when you started using your voice as a private citizen on your own social media pages, no affiliation to the company. 
Um, let's go back and revisit that time when you started using your voice um, and talk to me about like, what was the first moment where you felt compelled to start speaking out during the pandemic? I mean, it was the first day. It, even, I mean, I think before lockdowns happened, I knew it was coming. I sensed it coming. I mean, anyone who was paying attention knew it was coming. I was not surprised. In, in San Francisco, I think it was March 13th was the date that lockdowns were initiated. Schools were closed. Um, and I knew from the outset that this was not the right approach, especially as it pertained to children. I did keep most of my posting and advocacy to kids because I thought that we might be able to find some common ground on on children and the harms that were being done to children. But I knew very early on, I was reading the data uh, coming out of Italy where the median age of death was over 80, meaning children were not harmed. Uh, I went back and read the CDC's pre-pandemic playbook, which stated schools should never be closed for more than a few weeks. I saw the way that government officials and public health Officials were changing the narrative every three minutes and nobody seemed to care what they said yesterday was not what they were saying today. Um, never wear a mask. You must wear a mask. You know, two weeks to slow the spread. Oh, now it's about hospital capacity. Oh, now it's about ventilators. Oh, we can't use ventilators. Those are actually harmful to people. The story just changed on a dime and no one seemed to care. But what was consistently true is that children were at little to no risk from this virus, from very poor outcomes. That's been true since the beginning. And yet all of the most onerous and egregious restrictions, even still to this day, are placed on children. And they have the most to lose. They have they have the most to lose from these restrictions, the educational harms, the developmental harms, um, the mental health impacts, which we're all seeing play out now. And so I was very concerned about it from the beginning. I should state that I was right about all of it. I think we're seeing that now. And I think proof of that is no one wants to own these policies. Everyone is trying to distance themselves. Everyone from Fauci to governors like Whitmer and Hochul, they're all saying, I didn't shut the schools. Oh, that was terrible, but I didn't do it. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But from the very beginning, I spoke out. I was posting on social media as it evolved. I began to appear on local news shows and I wrote op-eds and led rallies to get schools open. They were closed for 18 months in San Francisco. Playgrounds were closed for nine months. Throughout that time period, I was told repeatedly by my peers and my boss, the CEO, that I should stop, that this was not a view the company held. I said, I'm not speaking on behalf of the company. I'm speaking as a mom of four. And they said, yes, but you're a public figure. And when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. And I just kept saying, I don't. It became more and more heated over the course of two years, even though they were all sending their children back to private school, they were telling me I had to stay quiet on the persistent public school closure. So to my mind, that was very hypocritical. And it was also akin to saying, you know, we deserve this, but your kids who go to public don't. And the low-income children in San Francisco who go to public don't deserve what our kids have. And I I wouldn't stand for that. That's That has nothing to do with equality. It has nothing to do with uh, believing in education as the sort of stepping stone um, in, our, in our culture, in our world. It's about keeping privilege for the, for the privileged. And I think largely that's what lockdowns have, have done. 
Yeah. You posted some of the tweets in the, in the book. I'll, I'll just share a couple for the folks uh, watching and listening. Um, you know, it's Septem- in September of 2020, you just said most private schools in San Francisco will open on Monday. Public schools won't. My kids will remain at home. I'm sad for them and their peers. I'd like to understand the plan to address how far behind many will fall. Is there one or do we pretend uh, screen learning works just fine. Another tweet um, you sent out, and these won't seem that controversial either. You said, I can't believe bars in San Francisco are open, but my son can't go to high school. Um, and then, you you know, you were citing um, articles, things like that, you know, um, really. I th- My question is like, why, why do you think it was so controversial internally? Or like kind of, can you talk to us about like the yeah. evolution of that? When did people start to like say something about, the social media, because it, it looks pretty benign just looking at it now. Well, I know it, it was, I was very careful. You know, as I was writing the book, I went over all my tweets and I was like, did I, you know, I went over years. And I was like, gosh, gosh, I seem so nice and reasonable, but it's hard to explain in San Francisco how unacceptable it was to hold this view, no matter how nicely you said it, it was, it was completely unacceptable. And not only was it a view that was problematic, you were evil if you held it. You were evil and racist and you wanted teachers and children to die. And that's, you know, the kind of name calling I was subjected to in the Twitter sphere, but also uh, by colleagues and employees. It was just, I think we have a lot of amnesia at this point, but I mean, there were there were when when in the fall of, of 2020, when when uh, certain rallies started to happen, teachers would show up with coffins indicating that if you wanted schools to open, you were going to murder them and, and children. None of this was ever true. Um, but the fervor with which these statements were upheld made anyone who dared question them a, an outcast and just an evil person. And so. You know, the the calls from my peers didn't start until fall of 2020. The head of corporate communications, a peer, called me and said, you really need to consider what you're saying and stop saying this. She was about to send her own kids back to school at this point, of course. So, you know, I think I've had a lot of time to think about it. I think for some reason, the woke stance and the stance of the Democratic Party was lockdown forever, children can't go to school they need to stay home so that we keep everybody everybody safe and if you violated that you were a heretic and you were going to be taken down and so the, the the complaints from employees escalated over the course of the next year and a half um they were further inflamed when i appeared on fox news in the spring of 2021 i was invited on to talk about my experience in advocacy as a mom and moving my family to denver so that my children could go to school. At that point, it was like, well, you know, you you went on Fox, you are the enemy. And I was actually asked, are you with us or against us? As if a blood oath is required to work in the company. But that pretty much defines what the view was. Upholding these COVID policies, lockdown mandates, I should say, was proof that you are card-carrying Democrat progressive. And if you asked any questions, you were a right-wing conspiracy theorist and you needed to be banished because you were not one of us anymore. You are one of them. 
Yeah. Um, that was, so you tweeted in February of 2021 and it was the, the image of your young son, kindergarten age son, he had a blanket over him. I'll post it maybe in the, in the, um, when I, when I edit this, um, and you just talk about like this, like really joyless experience of kindergarten behind the screen. And you mentioned like CNN's Jake Tapper retweeted, uh, your thread at the time you of course got invited on to Fox news on the Laura Ingram angle. And that was like, I think the straw that broke the camel's back internally. Um, yeah. and you, by the way, for folks watching, listen to you are, were an Elizabeth Warren supporter during the primary. Um, but there was an email you recently tweeted and you also cited in the book that you received, um, which I'll also I- include and I'll, I'll quote it cause I think you were just alluding to it, but you said it was somebody wrote to you. We don't know who, um, I don't know if you'll reveal who wrote it, but you, they said, Jen, I've been thinking a lot about this. And my sense is that there are people who just don't like what you're saying or where you said it. It's in conflict with the good, bad world we're living in where Fox is bad and MSNBC is good was going on Fox and that show in particular, an endorsement of what they stand for. Are you quote, one of us or quote, one of them, perhaps an oversimplification, but that's what it feels like. I think explaining why Fox is important. And then they go on to say, I don't think you actually need to address each of those, but I'm guessing that the following is pretty close to the list. And there's a series of questions of one, why did you choose Fox slash Laura Ingram, Ingram show? Do you endorse the views of Fox News and Laura Ingram? Are you anti-mask? Are you anti-vax? Are you into conspiracy theories? Are you anti-union? Is advocating for school reopenings perpetuating systemic racism, mostly white moms, et cetera, et cetera? Is there a conflict of interest between your role as Levi's brand president and what you are saying on your personal Twitter? What was your reaction when you received that in your inbox? So that email was intended to be a sort of kind, supportive email to help me prepare for what was being called internally as my apology tour. So after my appearance on the Ingram angle, the noise internally got louder and louder, and it was suggested to me by members of corporate communications as well as HR that I do this apology tour for a select group of employees. Um, So that note was sent to be helpful in a sense, to say this is what you should be prepared for in um, in the apology tour. You know, it's so interesting. It was, it was a dark time for me. And I, despite the fact that I was, you know, diplomatic and um, seemingly not that controversial in the things I was saying, um, I knew how, how controversial they actually were. And so it was just this constant battle and constant struggle uh, for two years, and I was sort of treated as just this really toxic employee, and everybody was trying to to distance themselves from me. So when I got the email, I didn't find it surprising. I mean, I read it now, and I'm left, I'm amazed. I, I mean, it's shocking. Are you with us or against us? What, did I join a cult? I, I mean, it's insane. Um but I kind of took it in stride when I received it because it was just so the way it was. It seemed almost reasonable for me to have to answer these questions in a sense. And, you know, I agreed to this apology tour because my intention was not to apologize, but to explain myself, which is exactly what I did. And I was asked some of those, those questions. I mean, that was the spirit of the whole, of the whole session. But honestly, it sounds like some sort of 
you know, CCP struggle session where you need to pledge your loyalty, end up, you know, re-educated and pledging your loyalty to the party. This is my place of employment. Do I have to hold a certain political view to work in a place? Does my spouse have to hold a certain, because that was the other, that's not in that email, but one of the questions asked was about my husband and his views and his vaccination status. I don't see how that's relevant, but it's really cult-like. You know, you have to accept the views of essentially wokeness in the Democratic Party. And if you veer from them, you are no longer one of us and you should be banished. And I think this is frightening. And anyone uh, willing to accept this, I, I would really challenge. I mean, is this do we live in America? Do we have freedom of speech or, or not? Are you willing to trade those things for a, a sense of belonging and safety? It feels like people are. Too many people are. Yeah. Um, and then at some point, your social media comes back up because um, the company was doing a background check. I think they were, they, I assume they were assessing you for, um, you know, what, what the next potential role could be. And that that became problematic. I guess what, your past tweets became problematic and you resigned. Can you retell that story? Um, sure. The resignation story. Yeah. So, you know, with all the encouraging me to stop, not stopping, I did, I didn't ever stop. I kept tweeting. I led rallies, as I said. And you and got promoted this time too, I think. While, I did. While you I were got, tweeting. Yes. Yes. I got promoted in October, 2020, which I think is evidence of the fact that I was actually still doing a good job. I mean, some people now say, oh, they pushed you out the door because you were crappy at your job. No, I actually got promoted in, in October 2020, even amidst all this feedback. And the pro the promotion is, that's not the evidence. The evidence is after I got promoted to brand presidents, the stock price doubled from the, from the lows of COVID. So, you know, that's the evidence. And we continue to grow revenues and share and profitability and, and all of, all of that. By the summer of 2020, 21, I was told that I was a candidate for CEO, which makes sense given the role that I had, but that my social media presence was was a problem and that I should really not do it. I mean, this is the summer of 2021. I think people were sort of coming around to the idea that school closures were a bad idea, and yet it was still, you know, being held against me, I guess. So by October of 2021, my boss and I had dinner and he requested permission to do a background check on both me and my husband. So the investigation would include any financial entanglements, crimes committed, I have none of those. And of course, a social media scam for both me and my husband. He said this was standard operating procedure to be in consideration for CEO. I, I would I would say I think that's probably true for me, the candidate. I don't think it's standard operating procedure for the spouse, but we agreed, I agreed, because I didn't feel that I really had a choice. In hindsight, I think he held out CEO as a way to get me to agree to the background check so that he could use the background check, what it showed from social media as a way to push me out the door. I mean, that's that that's what I believe at this point. Um, I had developed, you know, a modest following, you know, larger than than when I started, maybe 20, 25,000 followers on Twitter. And I had some more prominent trolls. And so, you know, if you search for me, I suppose in Google, some of that would come up. And that was their concern if I were to step in into a CEO position, that it would be very controversial because there were still a lot of people that found my views to be incredibly problematic. 
I waited a couple months. I didn't hear from him. I didn't really know what was going on. But I did say at the time, you're not going to find any crimes or financial indiscretions. You will find my social media and it will be a judgment call and you will decide that it is not worth taking the risk, which is exactly what happened. And in January, I got the call that there was no longer a place for me at the company. I was offered severance to walk away quietly. That would come with a non-disclosure agreement. I did not want to walk away quietly because I wanted to be able to tell the story of the censorship that is the censorship and viewpoint discrimination happening in corporate America. And so rather than accept the severance and sign the non-disclosure agreement, I resigned and then I published an op-ed on February 14th, the, the, the day after my resignation about what happened. And that went kind of viral. I, I published it on Barry Weiss's Common Sense Now. Yeah, that's how I first press. came across him. I'm a paid subscriber to Barry Weiss, which is now um, called the Free Press, which is like the renaming of Common Sense. And not just any severance, you were offered like a million dollars to stay quiet. And um, I, I don't know, maybe I, don't, I think it's great that you didn't because you're able to use your voice. Um, I wonder, like, how many people probably get similar offers and they take the money or sign the NDA? Um, have you? I think most. Yeah. Probably a lot, yeah. It, have you heard from any folks um, at Levi's, like people who quietly come, said, oh, I agree with you, but there's, are people just afraid to speak up? I can't imagine you're the only person with this viewpoint. You know, it's, I have not heard from peers or people that I would consider friends, maybe that's, that's unfair. There are two that I've heard from, um, just to say, we miss you, which is nice and really means a lot. And, and two of them are people I knew for, for a very long time. For the most part, the people I worked with day in, day out, you know, I've, I've heard with no, from no one. And I, I'm sure they're told not to, not to talk to me. Um, that said, I have heard from a, a not insignificant number of employees or former employees who support me, who faced similar kind of challenges of, of censorship or just self-censorship, feeling they couldn't express themselves and their views in the workplace because the company has such a dominant view. I have also heard from quite a few people who have suffered due to uh, vaccine and mask mandates at the at the company. Um, and I'll be talking about some of that um, in, in upcoming writings. I'm still, you know, trying to really understand, understand the story. But look, Levi's has a, a vaccine mandate. I myself got vaccinated. Um, it, you know, I, I was not afraid of COVID. I'm a healthy, not so old person. Um, but I got it to keep my job. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks that were coerced into getting the vaccine that perhaps they didn't want or need or were at risk from getting uh, because of these because of these mandates. And some people with the health conditions that make it ill-advised from their doctor were still pressured uh, to get them. So I have heard I have heard from a lot of folks. I have also heard from some folks, and again, it's not the people I know so well who supported my my view, but did so quiet, you know, didn't feel they could speak up themselves. And I I get these notes all the time from people, you know, outside of Levi's as well. And I, you know, part of why I wrote the book is to encourage folks like that to speak up, because I think there are so many more of us than we're willing to take the stand. Um, 
I think a, I think a, there was a tyrannical minority that ruled this conversation. And the majority of us, I think, have solid common sense and understood that these policies were harmful to children, but so many were afraid to speak out. And the outcome could have been quite different. I don't mean in terms of my job, although that would have also been different. I mean, in terms of children and opening schools. And so the book is really above all kind of a challenge or an exhortation to people to speak up and to use their voices. Yeah. um, Speaking up and using your voices. Let me ask you this. So it's like kind of a follow on because I'm sure you've thought about it. Like, do you think people are quiet because they're afraid of like the consequences? Like you get canceled. It's saying you don't deserve a paycheck. You don't deserve income. You don't deserve a job. And I think a lot of people don't feel like they're in a position financially to be able to use their voice. What do you think it is that keeps people quiet? I think it's two things. I think the primary thing is um, being ostracized from the group and from friends. And that happens. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And it's really hard, but I think most people would rather sort of be part of the group and feel sort of virtuous within the group um, because it was, let's be clear, the virtuous position to demand closures and staying home forever. And people would rather feel part of the group and get to feel that they have the moral high ground um, than to question and challenge and, you know, stand up uh, in defense of children in in my case. Um, I do think people are afraid of losing their jobs and that is a real fear uh, that is valid. You know, clearly I did. And for me, um, I was able to, to do it. I was an executive. I have a nest egg. I, um, I can get through not collecting a salary for a while. So I do understand that. But I guess what I would say is if we do it all together, then we're the majority. And I don't think at that point we can be canceled and fired. Yeah. Um, people often ask you where you stand on the political ideology, ideological spectrum. I think in the book you wrote about being progressive. You talked about supporting Elizabeth Warren during the uh, Democratic primary. Um, you've also talked about like, you know, kind of feels like we live in a very binary uh, world where people just kind of associate with their political affiliations. How has like this process or maybe the last couple of years, how has it kind of changed the way you kind of view the political uh, landscape in our country? Well, I mean, I'm rejecting this binary. We're sort of forced into, I guess I'm non-binary politically speaking at this point. I'm a registered independent, unaffiliated. It's called here in Colorado. I don't trust the Democratic Party, the party I'd been affiliated with and registered with my entire life. I think um, COVID policy alone, I think was inhumane, cruel, it violated so many of our civil rights, the right to, we were censored, so our right to speech was violated. We couldn't congregate, we couldn't protest, um, we couldn't, people couldn't practice their religion, you know, religious services were online. That's not, that's not the same. Kids couldn't go to school. They were denied free and equal access to an education. Um, These, this, this is not a party that cares about people. You know, they care about power and sure. The same can be said of the right, but I am, at this point, much more critical of the left one. It was the party that I had spent my life a part of. And so I guess in a sense, I've been red pilled, (laughs) Um, but they do not live the values they claim 
uh, to have. They just don't. They didn't care about the vulnerable. They didn't care about children. Um, people of color were harmed the most. Children, minority children, low-income children were harmed the most. These are all the things they say they value. These are the people and the groups they sell, say they want to uplift. And they set, they set low-income children back 30 years in terms of educational progress. So I do not trust this party um, and the lean towards authoritarianism. The governor of California maintains emergency powers to this day, COVID emergency powers. He is not letting go of, of his these powers. It's so much easier to grab uh, emergency powers than to legislate as a leader. And so I am very much not a part of the Democratic Party. I'm not running to the other side. I am a I'm an independent and I will vote according to the things I care about for the candidates that support civil rights, the Bill of Rights and children. Mm -hmm. And then kind of just thinking about um, corporate America, because um, you talk about like in the book how um the company's principles mutated into woke capitalism and woke capitalism isn't just a Levi's issue. It's uh, widespread. Would you ever go back to corporate America? And if so, like what would you look for um, before making that decision to join a company? You know, I, I, I think I would, I, I don't know. I'm not anxious to right now, but I am getting calls, you know, and so the first thing I ask is, do you know my story? Are you okay with that? Um, I'm outspoken. I'm not going to give that up. I have certain things I believe in, and I'm going to advocate for those. And, you know, without without exception, the folks that call me, that is why they're calling me, you know, and they believe that leaders need to be courageous and make hard, hard decisions and um, stand up for what they believe in whether that's, you know, in their lives or within the business. A lot of leaders talk a good game about being courageous and decisive, but at the end of the day, they just follow the crowd and the mob. And so, you know, I think there are companies out there that want what I would have to offer, what they perceive I have to offer. I would just want to make super duper sure that, um, you know, I could still be myself. Yeah. in the role. But I, I think there are opportunities out there. I mean, the fact is I have to work. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go back to work. So I'll take my time figuring out what the right role is, but I think at some point probably. Yeah. Let me ask you this too, because, um, this headline came out, I don't know, a couple months ago now at this point in the Atlantic, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say is, um, it's time to declare, I think amnesty, what was it? Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. And one of them being, you know, the consent, the broad consensus now is that the schools are closed for way too long. The risks within the schools were low, uh, in terms of spreading. Um, I'd have to like go back and revisit the exact uh, language in the article, but what are your thoughts? Do you think there should be an amnesty? No. The people who want amnesty are the people on the left who are the ones who upheld and furthered and defended these policies and smeared anyone with slurs that challenged them. Where's my amnesty? Yeah. No one's suggesting I get amnesty and get my job back. What about the kids that were harmed? I cannot imagine another issue in the political sphere, the social sphere that went so wrong that such poor decisions were made where there would be this call for forgiveness and amnesty. There are investigations. There are uh, people lose their jobs. You know, 
that that call for amnesty, it sort of suggests like, oh, it doesn't suggest, it says, it was a difficult time in the fog of war we couldn't have known. It's not true. And it was your job to know as public health leaders, as government leaders. Um, it was your job to study the data. It was your job to ensure that we were looking at people's health holistically, not through the lens of one virus. It was your job to make sure that children got an education. And they act like this just happened because of COVID. No, there were people who made these decisions. These were policy choices. Some countries made different choices. Sweden, Denmark, the list goes on. All of Europe basically made a different choice because schools opened there in the fall of 2020. Some states made a different choice, but they don't want to say that these, they, they want to pretend it was just COVID and it just happened and that there weren't people making these decisions because if we say that people made the decisions, then we have to hold them accountable and they should not have their jobs. Let's be honest. They failed catastrophically and children were harmed. So there's a plea for amnesty. The other part of the that piece that you referenced that just makes me laugh is there's this sort of theme in it that, well, we may have been wrong, but we were wrong for the right reasons. We were just looking out for people. But you, you people who questioned and challenged, you might have been right, but you were right for the wrong reasons. So you're still the bad people and we're still the good people. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense. So there can be no amnesty, only accountability in my mind. Yeah. Um, you write in the book, you have four children, you have um, young children, you have uh, young adult children as well. And so maybe this is more um, pertinent to the, the young adult children who um, will be uh, entering the work world uh, sooner. What would you say or what, what, what do you say to your older children and even even to your younger children? What do you want them to take away from this experience? What lessons uh, do you want to impart on your own children as they go out into the world? Look, I, my younger children don't completely, you know, my youngest, my daughter was three when this all started, which means she spent a third of her life in a mask, which is kind of insane. But they don't understand, you know, everything that happened. Um, but what I would, my older children do, and some of it was really tough for them, you know, they missed really important milestones graduations and proms and all art shows they're both artists like all this stuff that matters how many milestones make a life and people would argue all the time oh it's just this or it's just that who cares you're selfish if you care about missing this event well that's what makes a life and for a young person to miss these milestones it adds up you know it's really really tough that said they you know my older kids haven't always loved my outspokenness on this. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go into much detail there. I, I think at the end of the day, what I would like to model for my children is that you need to stand up and use your voice and speak up about the things that you care about, the things you believe in. I don't care if they're different than the things I do. I don't care if you disagree with me. Stand up, do it, advocate. I think that's, that's what you have to do. And hopefully I've modeled that behavior. I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Uh, Jennifer Say, author of Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob, took my job but gave me my voice. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us uh, here on this show. Really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas and most importantly, using your voice. Thank you so much, Jennifer. 
Thank you for having me. And thanks for reading the book. You read very carefully. I'm impressed. Of course. Well, I, I like to do that before my interviews. I'm um, really awesome. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great um, rest of your day. And I'll send oh, you the you episode too. when it's live. Thanks, Jennifer. Awesome. Thanks.